before we start the show, I wanted to let you know about a limited opportunity. The doors are open to our online community. Where we're helping clinicians get confidence and success when dealing with the complexity of pain we see in practice. We have Brownie Thompson, Mike Stewart, and myself helping clinicians get the training they need to get comfortable managing pain well. You get live events, workshops, peer support, and direct feedback on your practice and your unique struggles. You can visit the community on your computer or on the go on your smartphone. The doors are closing on May 8th, so make sure you check out modernpainpro.com for all the details and to start transforming your practice today. The Modern Pain Podcast is a proud member of the PT Podcast Network. Make sure you check out ptpodcastnetwork.com for other awesome PT-related podcasts. If there's anything we've learned from research and our better understanding of the science around pain, it's that we need to change as clinicians. We need to go from traditional biomedical models where we treat people like cars to a more person-centered biopsychosocial approach. We need to look beyond biomechanics and pathology and work towards understanding unique people and how their unique stories can impact their biology and in turn pain. For me, it's always been a little bit helpful and even probably therapeutic to talk to others who've navigated that journey well. This week's guest, Craig Liebenson, is someone who has adapted his practice and teachings a ton as it has become clear that we need to bring the humanity back to healthcare. In this episode, you'll hear Craig's background in philosophy and how his practice has evolved. We discuss the importance of behavior change and how adopting a patient-centered model is a must in clinical practice. There are a ton of challenging contexts clinicians practice in that make it hard for them to practice in a person-centered model. You may be surprised what he tells his students who are struggling to provide people with the time and attention they need. Hearing Craig's story and perspective will give you a great example to follow and better your own practice. Enjoy the episode. This is the Modern Pain Podcast with Mark Cardula. Welcome to the podcast, Craig. Mark, it's a pleasure. You know, we were talking before this. This has been a long time coming. I think you know, you and I have had traded, you know, messages and social media posts, you know, commenting back and forth on each other's stuff. Um, like-minded individuals. So I said, man, we got to get Craig on because it's, you know, we always have these kind of somewhat abbreviated discussions. So today we'll have a, a much more in-depth discussion on some of the things. I think we share a lot of uh, similar viewpoints. So hopefully you'll, you guys will find some value in this stuff. But before we get into the discussion, Craig, I'd love to hear kind of where you're at, what you're up to, and then we'll get into some questioning about your journey because I think yours is somewhat similar, it sounds like, to mine. But what are you up to? Where are you at? I'm in Los Angeles. I'm a chiropractor. Um, and uh, things I'm working on right now are um, uh, really uh, transferring uh, the uh, teaching towards uh, uh, my co-faculties, Ryan Chow, Donald Mull, Katie Dabrowski, multidisciplinary team. I'm 63 years old now, so where I'm at is it's time, it's time to kind of um, uh, pass the torch to the next generation. And um, I feel really excited about uh, the community. I feel really excited about where uh, our musculoskeletal space is, is headed, although uh, I'm charged with... Um, I'm charged with the insecurities and the imposter syndrome and the angst about um, how slow knowledge translation is. And I think that just keeps my passion burning. Um, so I'm really thrilled at this moment to see that the community is growing um, and maybe post Lancet, the expose, the three-part expose on back pain, um, how uh, people became more comfortable from the researchers on down to using social media in a positive way 
So I don't know why I'm optimistic. There's really no reason for me to be optimistic <laughs> that I am. You know, it depends on what you read. I've, I've learned to really filter my feeds to make my sanity stay in check and all that stuff. Because, yeah, social media can be the Wild West and a lot of good discussions to be had as long as you can kind of filter out all the, 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 the interesting things that come through the feed. You know, I've, I was speaking at your biography on your website before we, we came on here and I'm like, man, th- th- Craig's had interactions with the Vladimir Yonda. And I, and so just some of the mindsets and thought processes. I, I remember when I was going through PT school, upper cross syndrome, lower cross syndrome and all these good things that, you know, great theories that were coming out around the time and, you know, Yonda being a, a massive pioneer and things. I would love to hear your journey of kind of and kind of how you've shifted over time with with kind of your your approach and your thought process. Obviously, signs of a good clinician is one that changes as as research and as obviously our biggest teachers, our patients tell us we need to. Uh, I'd love to hear your journey and kind of how it's kind of evolved over time. Wow. So, uh, yeah, when I was when I was a student in chiropractic school, um, I was more of a mind uh that I wasn't becoming a chiropractor because I wanted to do chiropractic adjustments. Um, I wanted to be an alternative medicine practitioner. I felt uh, that in healthcare, I already had an idea in healthcare that we couldn't really trust the status quo. And so that has stuck with me throughout. I always challenge the status quo. And so um, one thing led to another. Um, I got exposed to Kim Kaur's work on neurobiologic mechanisms of manipulative therapy, an osteopathic researcher. And that opened me up to a broad view of the locomotor system, which eventually led to being exposed to Dr. Carol Levitt and Professor Yonda's uh, pioneering work. Um, now, fast forward, <laughs> fast forward, I always appreciated Gordon Waddell's ideas about the biopsychosocial model. So it wasn't really like um, a binary thing where I was um, a mechanist and then I understood the psychosocial or inactive or ecological approach. Um, but uh, I think that um, what happened, and I think I'm guilty of this more than, 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 than Vlad was, uh, Professor Yonda, um, he had an eye. He was able to observe people move, like their gait, and identify that there was a, uh, some baselines that maybe were contributors. Uh, he never, ever, and I think he's misunderstood on this, he never really pushed this idea that uh, we were going to do corrective exercises. Uh, I think that that is something that came in more with Gray Cook. And um, I think that myself... Uh, like a lot of people, we were influenced by all of these different planets that were or- orbiting uh, the mus- in the muscular skeletal space. And so it was very natural to seek these, these kind of recipes or cookie cutters. So, okay, well, if the psoas is tight and the glutes are inhibited, then we should do um, relaxation, post-isometric relaxation uh, techniques on the the shortened structures or the overactive hypertonic structures, and we should focus strengthening exercises on the weak links or the inhibited structures. So it, it became very easy to see like these syndromes and, and they were comfortable handles, but like anything, it gets out of control. And I'm very guilty uh, of uh, uh, taking a more mechanical approach um, over, the, over the years. And I think it's it, Gordon Waddell, um, uh, knew that we were never given really a good handle for the social. We had the psychological. We knew anxiety. We knew fear. We knew fear avoidance beliefs and abnormal illness behavior um, um, from Vlyan and other other great 
researchers, but we didn't understand that that behavior change, like Lorimer Mosley says, you know, that's the game. That, that's the game that we're in is behavior change game. And we're not equipped. <laughs> and the fix it approach winds up sabotaging a lot of people because now we see people. So if we come full, full, you know, full forward, um, we see people that like, well, I can't, um, I can't do that exercise because I have this imbalance. And until I release this, my QL, my psoas, my traps, whatever, um, fill in the blank. Uh, well, uh, you know, I, even body weight exercise, even, you know, uh, yellow band, TheraBand exercises, um, people feel fragile. And so I think what we've discovered is that we overemphasize biomechanics and we ignored physiology. And even though we were aware of psychology, because we ignored physiology, we didn't realize that you, if you give people gradual exposures to feared stimuli, the tissues will become not only more resilient and robust through adaptation, but you're, sci you're concurrently addressing the psychological because you're enhancing uh, tolerance or intolerance. You're lowering their tolerance while you're increasing their capacity. And now you're marrying the physiology and the psychology. And so these handles, uh, mechanics, physiology, psychology, they're all part and parcel. But by ignoring physiology, we, we were pushing the boulder uphill. And I think we're still struggling with the social, how to create accountability, how to give support. Um, and you and I could spend the rest of this hour talking about behavior change and what, what a challenge it is. Yeah, you, you bring up some good points about, you know, the exposure work. And I think a lot of times we were doing it implicitly without realizing we were doing it just through a lot of the you know graded programming that we did without really having a good rep you know, recognition of, hey, I'm also working on the psychological piece here of just getting people confident to start engaging their bodies. But exactly, you know, I, I can relate to, you know, some of the things I, I look in my past of, you know, I, I always term it like I was putting people in movement jail of like, you know, very hyper analytical biomechanical assessments and stuff to where you got to move a certain way, a perfect way that's going to keep you out of pain, which as we know, and as we've seen, there's been <laughs> some patients that that can go very much awry, uh, where they really limit life significantly because of these rules that get placed upon them from, again, I didn't do, we didn't, we don't do these things maliciously. I mean, it's part of the learning process as you grow, but I'm sure we all, and those of you listening can probably relate to some. I think it's so hard, Mark, because, you know, we want to be scientific and we learn certain things work, but unfortunately we have cognitive dissonance. So we see things through these rose colored lenses and we develop this idea about right and wrong. And it turns out, you know, our ability to predict our, 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 um, our um, need to be accepting of uncertainty, um, those two things, I think, uh, bring about a humility. And, and I really did see a humility in Professor Yonda and Dr. Levitt. Um, uh, Levitt always taught us that we work at the level of acceptable uncertainty. And so, yeah, we have all these techniques and methods, but also like Dr. Levitt said, don't be a slave of the methods. The methods should serve the goals. So being person-centered has always been the ground. And I think if you're person-centered, then, um, you know, like all the self-management experts say, like Jan Hertvigensen and Alice Kongstead, um, then it's implicit that we have to give support. So I think the social 
is something through debriefs and through being there for people. Um, I give my cell number to people. I want text debriefs. I know it's a tough journey. I know resilience doesn't mean I fixed anything. Like this fix it mindset, we ain't fixing anything. People's pain, like Bronnie Lennox Thompson says, and you just had her, it was a brilliant podcast. I hope everybody watches that. This, this approach from acceptance and commitment therapy that, that, that we have to accept that, that we're not curing, we're not fixing. Um, pain will do what pain does, as Bronnie says. And, and to help our clients see and recognize and appreciate, acknowledge and accept that, that we're not really influencing the episodes. The episodes will run a course like colds and flus. Like Deo said years ago, you know, the great evidence-based spine expert, um, we should look at back pain more like diabetes or asthma. We're helping people cope and manage and live their life. And so that's the social. We want to get people back to participation at whatever level that is. Yeah. You, you bring up some good points about, you know, the clinician. And I think I've been this clinician too, where I just clutched on this model and approach because I don't think I was ready to, to accept that uncertainty. I mean, there's a little bit probably of an ego thing that's involved. I know for me, I wanted to feel like I was arrived, that I was this master clinician who, you know, everybody looked up to clinically and referred me their patients and all these things. So to admit this, I guess I looked at it as like this weakness of like not having the answer. Like you need to be able to swoop in this room and like, you know, I've had the beliefs of all sorts of things around manual therapy of like, you know, I can see that dysfunction across the room with that's a facet of L4 or 5, whatever. Um, but, you know, just the, the humbling experiences of patient after patient and going through, you know, the highest level of training here and still seeing it, you know, kind of not well fall flat for a lot of patients who have obviously things more complex than that. What was your like transformational, you know, did you have any like specific patients or were there specific things you came across that really kind of smacked you on the head of like, man, I need to kind of change the way I'm looking at things or has it just been a gradual thing over time for you? You know, we see the younger generation today uh, talk about facing imposter syndrome. And I don't think that any of us, if we're honest, can ever say that we could tell like this person would respond to sacroiliac or, you know, general cavitation or, you know, uh, muscle relaxation or advice to meet the PA guidelines. Um, so in terms of myself, I feel like uh, one, I think my superpower is that I've always known that I didn't know. And that's driven me to be a seeker for knowledge. Um, and I've always felt like an imposter. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to be there with people. And I think the transition isn't from thinking I knew to thinking I don't know. Um, but, but I think what it really is, is, is from uh, being more explicit and comfortable in that space of acknowledging that uncertainty with people. Um, being somebody who's, who's not dismissive. So, you know, if you tell somebody, well, it's going to run a course and you say it in, in a way where it's as matter of fact, well, that's dismissive. So finding that kind of heart center where we're really, really giving care and sharing our space with people. So maybe not even, not even in a way that is, is full on empathy, more compassion. So, so yes, we are um, aware of the landmines. 
So it's not just, you know, we're understanding where they are, which is empathy, but we also want to provide some leadership from our experience and our knowledge and um, help them establish a beachhead and show them a roadmap. Like there is a roadmap. I think the biggest roadmap pivot is really the ACT one for me and what I'm learning from Bronnie. Um, this idea about resilience, about acceptance, and it is, it's going gonna, it's gonna to occupy me for the next 20 years to, to tell people that they're, that, and we don't say it this way, but that, that in reality that they're going to have to accept the pain. Like pain is normal. Your body's built to last. It's not built to break, but that you can function. That is, I mean, I'm not equipped for that. So I am the biggest imposter, but, but I feel like that's the road. The road forward is people are going to be 70, 80, 90. Can they stay in the game? Can a 75-year-old plays golf right now who is a, um, you know, I'd say I can think of a, of a picture right now. I have a woman I'm working with, 75, trim, uh, didn't get the memo about sarcopenia. And so she does Pilates or bar method, um, does some cardio, plays golf, doing what she loves socially. Uh, but now I'm realizing and, 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 I, and again, it's motivational work that I'm not trained in. I realized, well, can I talk to her about, would you like to play when you're 85? Okay, well, here's, here's what I think from my experience it's going to take. The science tells us that uh, if we build muscle mass now, uh, biologically, your biological age will, will get younger. You can blow out fewer candles at your next birthday than your last birthday. It's a biomarker and it's the low hanging fruit for you. So is that a dysfunction that we're correcting? No, but it kind of is. <laughs> it's a gap. And I always want to bridge the gap. For me, Jill Cook's model uh, uh, with Pudia, th this is the needs gap analysis. It's, it is my lifesaver. It's my GPS. And having that, that was a big pivot for me to see, okay, I'm still looking at floor. I'm just not calling it maybe what I called it before. Now it's, you know, like Rachel's softness, you know, okay, stress, sleep, um, uh, anxiety, uh, social isolation. You know, these factors are just as important as um, strength, just as important as hitting the PA guidelines, being a non-smoker, et cetera. So, there's a limited number of these things. There's probably less than 10 of these, Mark. And that's where I really pivoted away from the mechanical towards these things that can wind up pain and are actually also the same thing that are accelerating age. We're older, younger. And that also is just a gift to all of us in the musculoskeletal space. The, the silver lining is people see us for pain and we get to talk to them about how to make their health span last their lifespan. You bring up some uh, good points around ACT, and, and I love your approach because it's, you know, you're bringing in a lot of lifestyle medicine type, you know, pillars and different things like that. W with when you when I talk about ACT, and, and I'm with you, I think anybody who hasn't read Bronnie uh, Thompson's blog, you're missing out because she gives like free education. I mean, and she's talking about some high level stuff around ACT. She just kind of short, too. Yeah, they're, they're definitely well digestible. She writes them in a good way. She's a good writer. And um, she she kind of just unpacked the whole Hexaflex model of ACT, which was a you know brilliant you know bit of writing to kind of help us navigate it. With Because I share some of the same frustrations. I'm not equipped coming out of school and, and even in the con ed space, it's kind of limited as far as like 
I know ACT needs to be part of the gig. I see such value in the whole acceptance piece and, and getting people, you know, pushing towards valued living versus this, you know, you know, walled in existence that sometimes health healthcare, you know, paints folks into. What do you feel like when it comes to like the, the clinic floor and, and the ability just to just, because for me, I feel like I just got to now, I just got to wade into these conversations. Some of them are going to go okay. Some of them may not go okay, but I'm going to definitely put myself out there with these concepts in mind and see and I think that's been a huge learning opportunity for me. I mean, again, some conversations haven't went as well as I'd hope them to go. But as you start working with some of these kind of psychologically informed principles, it seems like your best teacher. And if you can get some mentored, obviously, practice where, where folks are supervising and maybe giving you commentary, that's great. But a lot of us don't have that. So what are, what are your thoughts on just kind of putting yourself out there in these conversations and being willing to have these discussions that might go against our comfort zone. I know for me, I was much rather talk about facet joint things or, or, or discogenic things or things that kind of were, you know, our kind of physio wheelhouse as far as more of the tissue based stuff. But obviously we know the value that talking about how this is affecting people's lives and how they can start integrating some of the good things we're doing mechanically, but looking at it versus that tree approach, this more whole forest perspective that you speak of. How's that been for you? Oof. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to, where to start or what to say. You know, you started off talking about the clinic yeah. and I, uh, I'm reminded of something Daniel Lord said to me. So he was one of my hosts, a chiropractor in San Francisco area. And he went on to, um, head up crossover health where they, um, provide, uh, healthcare for self-insured, uh, fortune 500 companies, starting with Facebook, who he worked with. And, he wrote this very interesting thing where he talked about um, the tyranny of the visit. And I like to think of it more as the tyranny of the clinic. And, and this, is a, a, this is a real frustration for people that I'm mentoring. Um, they're in a space. So A, they come from a culture where they've come from physio or Cairo school or even the training space that crosses over. Um, um, and they've learned a fix it approach because <laughs> it's comfortable, right? It's nice level one stuff. And I even know educators who think, well, it's, it's okay to give people cookie cutters and protocols because that's their on-ramp. And I feel like, no, I'd rather we give them principles from the get-go. I think they're going to eventually hit a wall. Um, and I don't think we need to give them cookie cutters, but I think that you have the culture of the fix it and overly bio um, and they're not learning ACT. They're not learning motivational interviewing, nothing about catching the story and being passionately curious about the story like Joletta Belton and, and Peter O'Sullivan talk about. Um, so they're a disadvantage from the start. The history ain't sexy. There's no seminars that are, that are popular uh, on the history and motivational interviewing hasn't gotten out there really in, in, in musculoskeletal care. And, and so we then get into the, the, the gym or clinic environment and now you have the client expectations. So you have your culture from your education. Now you have the client expectations. And probably since the 60s or 70s, you know, patients of physiotherapists and chiros, they want the ultrasound. They want the stim. They want the laser. They want the dry needling. They want the, the rub, you know. Um, and, and so you now have the client expectations, you know. And then you have the person you work for, which in Cairo, you know, maybe, you know, somebody who's, you know, the, brought you in as an associate or in physio, it's like more corporate even, you know, or maybe you're in a hospital, you know? And so, you know, we talk about um, the social 
and vested interests. So there's the cognitive dissonance and the status quo situation of what we learned and it's hard to to de-implement what we learned and implement new stuff and therefore to translate knowledge. And then we have the social, the vested interests where you may have an employer or you're working in a, in a place where you gotta be transactional. <laughs> and so profit gets ahead of people. It can't be person-centered. These are, these are um, things which lead to burnout and are a ball and chain. And so we tell all our mentees that they have to leave. They have to become independent, that they will not be able to succeed in those environments that ecology is, is going to make them feel like imposters. If they're young, it's going to burn them out if they're seasoned. Um, they need to strike out on their own. And so there is like a, a line in the sand, Mark. Uh, and we've only realized that because the transactional model um, is, is um, a dead end. And so when we're truly person-centered, it's all to use the word you just, you just mentioned. It's gotta be value-based. So what is value? So, you know, we, have, we had um, uh, Lisa Ann uh, wrote, did a beautiful podcast recently, I forget her last name, um, on value and what people value. And that's what we're trying to ascertain. Ascertaining value is a big part of this, this brilliant podcast, and I'll, I'll give you the link later. Um, but uh, ascertaining value, finding out what matters to people, determining what matters, measuring it if we can measure it, and then creating a plan to bridge the gap from what they have to what they need and guiding them through the process. These are principles. It's not about protocol. It's not a cookie cutter. And, That's such a and principles will, will make it easier. So it's not that it's harder. If you're principle-based, it will make, it will free you. I know. And it's such a, it's a, it's an uncomfortable jump. Cause it's almost like I'm, it's, people are mooring themselves away from the or unmooring themselves to this harbor of safety um, that these like very rigid cookie cutter thought processes are. Uh, and you got to you just got to navigate the seas. But if you have principles, it puts you in a very, you know, seaworthy boat, I guess you could say that will help you navigate that where when you're experiencing turbulence and all the things that, you know, day to day clinical practice has, you have some principles because that's where cookie cutters fall short on the complexity of human beings rolling through our clinics. There are just cookie cutters that there is no cookie cutter for unique people. It's just you got to be able to kind of adapt, like you said, principles of of things and it's it's just a hard jump yeah. I, I love i love the fact yeah. that you're engaging your mentees and helping them because i've I, I have to walk a delicate line because i'm in the university and we have relationships with some clinics because we're always trying to help our students gain clinical exposure in their clinical placements and stuff so but i see some of these places where how do you even have a conversation with a person in these situations and then like the the workload and productivity and things and it's just it's a tough one and i've had to kind of politically oh. you know let people it's mean, almost why like is a, it, why else why else wouldn't it be mark that 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 we only get what 14 percent of evidence in practice over three decades yeah yeah that <laughs> that brutal. whole yeah and it's i mean we're not pro producing environments where that evidence is easily emerging when we got people just trying to survive with you know, just relying on the cookie cutter because that's the quick and easy and, and kind of uh, easy well, and look as far at Twitter, as look at the arguments, look at how things degenerate. Yeah. I mean, you know, I see Greg Lehman and Chad Cook going at loggerheads and I'm, <laughs> I'm watching this and I'm like, I want to say, why? Why? Yeah. I have utmost respect for both people. 
it doesn't make sense to me. But 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 I guess you know, talking to you, um, we take a step back, give a little you know, use objectivity. Well, we kind of kind of can see why. You know, it's the nature of the beast on these um, platforms, and then depending upon what people's um, agendas are, they can get uh, they can go into these little these little vortexes. Um, uh, I, you know, I think Louis Pasteur said it. There's a lot you can learn by observation. <laughs> I think if people yeah. sit back and they observe, you know, it's like with, with clients, you know, you like, I could be blind. Like you can, if you listen, if you observe with, with just hearing, there's a lot you can learn. You know, when we do motivational interviewing, just sitting back and listening, Peter says yeah. it, you know, tell me your story. And then you just, you pause, you're, you're receiving you're taking it in, but do we know where we're headed? No, I spend 45 minutes. Peter said, Peter spends an hour on his whole thing, including his behavioral experiment uh, after the history. I, I, I'm not as good at taking a history as Peter. I got to spend 45 minutes on just listening to their story. Then I do the behavioral experiment for 45 minutes. Then I run out of time because now I want to connect the dots and create sense making and do a teach back and give them videos of what they're doing what their movement snacks are like an hour and a half isn't enough time on the first visit. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you on that. It, it you, you, I feel like, man, I could have like a three hour evaluation for some folks, especially when you're seeing just a lot of like complexity. I mean, everybody's got complex stories, but when you're like, wow, there's a lot of things I need to start, you know, piecing together for this person and, and creating a, a context in your clinic to help them start challenging some of their beliefs. How has it been for you? I know for me, it was a major struggle to allow silence to exist in my treatment room. I always had to fill it with my knowledge and my expertise. And um, to me, it just snuffed out the other expertise that sits in the room, which we know is our patients, probably the biggest expert, and obviously the expert in their their life and their experience and what pain is to them. How's that been for you? Like, do you find that that's been something you've had to hone over uh, time or is that something that allowing that silence to exist so patients can kind of process emotions and and having that kind of discomfort as a clinician where you're kind of maybe squirming a little bit on the inside of like, well, these are some tough you know, emotions coming out. What are, what's been your experience with that silence? Well, you're making me uncomfortable now. <laughs> so, so I, I'm, I think I'm schizophrenic. Um, my, my family tells me that, that like, I don't, I don't listen well. <laughs> and, and in, in, in the clinic space, working with people, um, trying to find out what's meaningful, what matters to them, what they value. I feel like I've trained myself, like, like I've conditioned myself in. So it's not the tyranny of, of my office, the room where I, where I get the story. Um, I feel like I've conditioned myself in that room um, to sit back and to create a space, to, to give space to the person that's coming in. And in the end of the session, I feel comfortable about um, uh, sealing that by saying, listen, what you're paying for is, is concierge. And what concierge is in this situation is debriefing later. I want to hear from you later. We're not fixing anything right now. This is an ongoing thing. And so things are going to crop up. You're going to have questions later. Um, you're going to have flares. Um, and... Um, I want you to reach out to me, good, bad, or ugly. So the encouraging them about what the process is. I mean, there, there's, 
there is a playbook. There's no cookie cutters, but there's a playbook. Like I have a zillion things to train a hinge and a zillion things to train, you know, trunk vertical, knee dominant squats. And I've got push and pull and, and I got a playbook for the lifestyle stuff. Um, so we're able to generate game plans, but we know, we know that whatever we start with is plan A. And we know that planning is necessary, but plans are useless, like Dwight Eisenhower said. So we are going to plan. It'll be shared decision-making, co-created. Um, but the biggest thing, going back to Gordon Waddell, who for me is as much a mentor as Levitt and Yondo was, um, he baked in from Angle the social. And maybe that's why Peter Stilwell and others don't like biopsychosocial because they recognize there was the tripartite approach and there was bio and psycho and social. And maybe they realized it because, well, where is the social? You know, social wasn't just the work comp system. Um, but I think that, that concierge medicine providing supported self-management, um, if we get into what it really means, the playbook is if we unpack it, it means that, that there's a communication tool for people whereby they can debrief with us. And I think that's the meaning of concierge. So when somebody pays me for the first visit, they're paying me for support. It's not a separate charge. Um, and I want to hear from them, good, bad, or ugly. The worst thing for me, you talk about pivots. I'll see people I haven't seen in 10 or 15 years, and they'll come in. The first thing they say is, oh, I've been great. I'm still doing those exercises you gave me. They're godsend, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, oh, no, you're still doing the pelvic tilt. <laughs> you're still doing abdominal hollowing, or you're still bracing. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, ah, what did I do? <laughs> I feel like shit. <laughs> hey, we, we've all been there. I've had my, I definitely have had my repeat uh, patients where I'm like, ooh, man, that was Mark pre, uh, you know, pre, you know, updating some thinking processes and things like that. Let's let's bring it to research a little bit because you, you mentioned some of the frustrations of, you know, how that gets in the practice and different things. One of my thoughts, and you know, I talk to people like I feel like sometimes I, research isn't telling us anything super new. I mean, I think we have a lot of information out there, and I mean, there, and then maybe it's because I think sometimes we keep beating the same horse of, you know, pit one intervention versus another with people who are very biased towards one intervention, and lo and behold, that intervention's better than the other one. But um, wh where do you think we need to move in research? And and I know it's the eternal question of how do we shorten that gap, and you know, if how long it takes to get the research into practice, and then the limited amount that even enters practice. Um, what are your thought processes, and where do you feel we need to go on that front? Mm, don't get me started. You just this is like a whole other pod. <laughs> can of can okay. of worms. First of all, as we kind of spoke about, there's the culture of the schools. And it may be it it may be worse in Cairo school, but but there's a lot of things that are a lot better in Cairo school. But one of the things maybe that's worse in Cairo school is um you know, we don't have endowed faculty, you know, the schools are now universities, but that's a newer thing culturally. Um, but what is being taught in schools is not up to date. The Lancet is now how many years old, Mark? And, oh, gosh. and who's yeah. aware, who's aware of that, that are, that are teaching in schools, at least in Cairo schools. I, I, it's, 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 um, 
it's an abomination. Um, so, you know, that's number one. But um, Peter O'Sullivan, if we skip ahead, don't talk about the schools. <laughs> um, Peter, in his recent publication about cognitive functional training, showed the beginnings of what it takes. So he's with people that didn't know CFT. And it's a three-month process for them to become minimally competent. <clears throat> They're doing videos of them interacting with people so they can show them their, uh, uh, their body language, their uh, tone of voice. It's like PNF, like tone of voice matters. <laughs> Inflection matters. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. It's how you act. Um, and then how you can see the responses in people when somebody has a fixed mindset, if the client has a fixed mindset, the patient has a fixed mindset, how um, the physio handles that, if the person's expecting a quick fix, is super anxious, has a lot of fear, or they're more of a know-it-all. You know, um, this, this is uh, so complex. And so for, for cognitive functional training, which would apply to, to other, other approaches like ACT, um, three-month journey to minimal competence, a lot of debriefs along the way with the clinicians as they're sharing struggles, they're sharing videos of interactions, they're getting feedback from Peter and his team. And after the end of three months, they now have some competency. Well, that doesn't mean they're anywhere close to mastery. <laughs> um, it's an ongoing process, not easy. So how do we bridge the gap? How do we get more um, implementation of high value approaches? Um, follow Peter's model to, to a great degree. I, I think that we're starting to see the signs. Um, I think the Lancet researchers realized that they needed to use, use media. They needed to get um, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, etc. Um, on board. Uh, they needed to uh, make their PowerPoints more sexy. They needed to do a Twitter storm, not leave uh, social media to knuckleheads. Um, and um, I don't know, I have no reason to be optimistic, but I am. <laughs> I'm going to seize on these things as sources of optimism. But, but ultimately, I think as a, as a physio and a Cairo, you and I, um, we can't let our, we can't let our, our unis and colleges off the hook. We have to keep our foot on their throat. It's not acceptable. It's never been acceptable. Never, never. And I think the Greg Lehman, Chad Cook uh, discussion, um, I think um, that illuminates issues between social media um, and academia. So Greg is very much a social media person, um, extremely smart. I'm not saying it to disparage. Um, I learn a ton from him. And Chad is on social media, but he's very much a, a, an academic person. And um, why there has to be a dichotomization there, uh, I think it highlights maybe something that uh, you and I um, can use to shed light on your question. I, I don't know the answer, <laughs> uh, but I kind of feel like there's something in there 
you know, Chad saying, well, we make mistakes, we move forward. And we, with humility, reconceptualize. Is that enough? Yeah. The, the challenge too, I see, and I'd be curious to see your thoughts on this is, uh, you know, we have like, and we'll just go with the U.S. physio culture because it's, you know, this yearly CSM combined sections, meaning it's like our, you know, yearly big event. And it's, I just see it so, and when I've, I went, I, well, last year I did go, um, and I've been most of the last few years and I just see this, like, it's this stage for academics who are pushing the publish or perish. They got to get something out. They put this thing together. And it just seems like it's, it's a researcher's, you know, zone of like, but it, where's the real stuff that clinicians can grab onto and get value in and use in the clinic on Monday. I just see there's this disconnect to me of like this whole research culture that gets created through academia and then what's happening on the front lines of clinical practice. And I get it because there's not very many, although I greatly appreciate folks like Peter O'Sullivan, you've mentioned who are navigating both worlds, who he's in the clinic working with patients. I would, you know, I think that's huge. I also recognize it's not always, you know, an option for some of the folks who are, you know, busy with academia. I also, I, you know, being part of academia, I think there is just so much fluffy, ridiculously procedural stuff that has zero to do with how well we're delivering a good product to the students and, and keeping things. But it's just, I don't know. I could go, we could probably go on for an hour about the, the issues with academia. Um, I'm trying to think what even my question is right now. I, I'm just, I guess my frustration is, and I'd be curious what yours is on this disconnect between the academic world. And I know you've, you've kind of alluded to it with Greg and, 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 and Chad, as far as this, you know, gruffing they had back and forth with each other. Where do you think we can do as clinicians who are struggling to find some value? I mean, I like, I mean, I mean, to me is like, we need to have folks attending folks, your, your courses working with your faculty, because they're folks that are seeing patients that are learning day to day and are navigating the same struggles and battles. Um, we try to teach the same stuff when we do some of our coursework. Uh, what do you think needs to happen to kind of help that, you know, divide of the academic and the clinician? I think without a doubt, anybody who's in the musculoskeletal space should be well-versed in the evidence. To do research and not know the evidence, that is going to lead to further polarization and a, a, a longer knowledge translation gap. So if somebody's in a bubble in an ivory tower and they're doing research on something in a very isolated way, but they're not aware of things like the guidelines on back pain or the unifying principles about how any region of the body, whether it's shoulder or knee, are still adhering to the same principles that have been you know, exposed to be kind of our bedrock for low back pain, you know, things like reassurance and reactivation. Um, you know, this idea that, um, that, oh God, I don't even know where to start, Mark. And you said you kind of lose your tra train on like, well, what am I really asking? It's such a big thing. But, but at the end of the day, I honestly believe that we have to stay anchored to the real world of the patient, of the client. And that takes us to value, the value equation. And when we're in the ivory tower, I could give a damn. 
it has to relate to what people in the trenches, your graduates, are going to face in the real world. So they're dealing with a transactional expectation from their employer and their client. Um, they're having to navigate the fact that there is no quick fix. It gets back to all the stuff that 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 drew me to you in the first place, Batman and Alfred. You know, we're not going to be able to satisfy our ego and be, you know, the magic isn't in our techniques. It's not in the, the encounter. It's in the empowerment. It's in, as you said earlier when we started today, it's the self-efficacy we give people, the feeling that they're resilient. So if we reassure people, if we activate them, if we make them feel resilient so that they can spring back from the ashes when flares occur, which will occur, then, uh, then we build in them kind of the anti-fragility that will help them handle novel things uh, that we can't anticipate. That's the uncertainty. And so as people in academia, they have to be anchored to the real world. So maybe it's an impossibility. Maybe most of them are there because they're not successful in the real world or they made a choice. I don't care. But for the young physios and the young chiros and the coaches out there, we all have to realize that, yeah, there's some value in research. But, but who's going to help me in the trenches? Game plan. Who's going to give me a playbook? for providing inestimable value to people. Well, it's going to be people like you and it's going to be people like Katie Dabrowski, who has two clinics where she's giving jobs to young physios, uh, where they're working on a gym floor, empowering people about how to set them up for set themselves up for success so that their health span will last their lifespan. So I think it's really buyer beware. And I don't want to worry too much about academia. I, I think we just got to move forward. It's important, um, but we have to focus on, we know so much now, how can we make it more practical, Mark? And when you, get, when you talked about um, this Batman and Alfred thing, and, and I think it was, um, uh, what's the person's name? It's Rod Henderson. Moment. Yeah. You know, the, the icon of that. And every young Cairo wants to be a Batman. Every young physio wants to be a Batman. Um, it feels good. And they're entitled to that early on. But if they also can at least accept another role as Alfred. And then over time, they'll figure out where they're comfortable. I'm comfortable 100% as Alfred. You know, I think that's the greatest thing at all. It's like, can you help a person feel empowered and have self-efficacy to the point where they become intrinsically motivated to address all the lifestyle things that are the perpetuators and the predisposing factors of, of more disabling musculoskeletal problems in the future, none of which are related to fix it, none of which. If we're talking about smoking and opiates and alcohol and weight and you know, uh, processed food and not doing strength training and not doing aerobic training and sleep hygiene and stress and social isolation. You know, it's, it's at most 10 things. And are those not as important as your PSOAS, as Joe Rogan says? Give me a effing break. So lifestyle is sexy. And yeah. there is research. It may not be in physio and chiro school, 
but there's research on all the social factors. There's, there's research on sleep science. There's, there's research in the physical activity space on the relationship of physical and inactivity to cardiovascular disease and cancer and, and, and metabolic disease. Um, just as there's research on smoking. So there is research. It just isn't in physiotherapy school. Yeah. And that's the problem. And so I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about this, Mark. <laughs> hey, and I admire it and I love it. I think, you know, that's part of the reason I think, you know, we drive with so well on social media and things is we share a lot of the same frustrations and have some of the same kind of motivations to change it a little bit. Cause I do agree. There's, I see academics one, I see folks who are pushing the research. And again, it's just this, it loses sight of the real, you know, that what, where's, what's in it for the patient type thing. It's like, it's just, uh, to me, there's just, you know, motivations that don't always, again, land well with who's the person who's struggling right in front of us to get back in their life. hundred percent. Sh shrunk and we're not percent. doing it. Yeah, we're, we're just at conferences, you know, hobnobbing with each other of, oh, look at this uh, p-value. Yet there's chronic pain still sucks and pe people are statistically, it's not moving in the right direction. Um, and again, I, I just think it's a, another comfort zone we can hang into is like the be the academic uh, and again i am somewhat i'm a clinical I, I, professor Mark, i but... think this i think the sexiest thing is to empower people and it's what mosley said the hardest thing is behavior change can we empower people can we empower changes when i was a cairo student to your point what was i told i was told don't worry about diet and exercise people aren't going to comply and i studied motivation adherence and compliance until i finally realized compliance is a in prison term. So why are we still talking about compliance? But let's talk about adherence. Well, we have a body of scientific literature about shared decision making and about therapeutic alliance. Okay, tell me more how we build therapeutic alliance. Well, we've yeah. created sense making. Like this stuff is all science. It is being researched. So let's put it front and center, connecting the dots shared decision-making, therapeutic alliance. Um, these are the languages of value from the client-centered perspective. Well, let's dig into all the other aspects. If ACT and cognitive functional training and motivational interviewing aren't being taught in the schools, how can we expect uh, the faculty's research to be on point? Or are we back to the biopsychosocial trichotomization, which isn't the real world. Well, no. we need to put it all together. Who's putting it together? The people that are practicing in the trenches have no choice but to put it together. So they are our teachers. So then we need to reverse engineer back to the schools pressure about, well, here are the struggles. Here's why they feel imposter syndrome. Here's why they feel burnout, because yeah. they are having trouble translating the knowledge into practice. De-implementing, de-implementing evidence discordant care, which is a super wicked crisis. Yeah, no, I think <laughs> so. Too it, often... it's, it's, it's just this fucking world. Oops, there I go again. It's just, no, it's, all right. it's just a swirling vortex. No, I agree. I think the the ivory tower needs to better serve the front line. I think sometimes the ivory tower is just serving the ivory tower and and publisher Paris mindsets and environments. And I know there's a lot of nuance to that when, for academics who are ready to scream at me. I have, res I have respect, but I'm not going to worry about that. No, I'm going to worry, can... worry about the people of the world, the, the fact that over 80% of people are inactive and that physios and chiros and trainers 
should have a relationship that's for life. It's not transactional. It's not for six weeks. That whole six week transactional thing, you know, you're a better clinician because your PVA, your patient visit average is low. Yeah. Supported self-management, as Alice Kongstead and John Hartkinson said, is an ongoing thing. So we need yeah. to learn from trainers. Being a positive health coach is for clinicians. The, the idea that trainers are beneath us, no, we need to, ethically speaking, we all need to be this Alfred figure that empowers people about the lifestyle approach. 82% of people do not meet, meet the PA guidelines and we're worried about PRI and DNS and, and subtle biomechanics and kinesiopathology. We need to recommend to people the safety and efficacy of general physical activity advice and use the musculoskeletal pain episode as a, a, for its silver lining. Hey, your pain's going to do what it's going to do. Let's nourish the tissues. The motion is the lotion. This is an exciting time. Yeah. But not if we're a hostage of all the entrepreneurial seminars or, of, or limited by just what we learned in school. Completely agree. I think there's there's a lot to be excited about, and sometimes I get too curmudgeon and and bitter over some of the things no, that aren't don't. going right. You, you're but, not. <laughs> but I think, like you said, if we can make Alfred sexy, I think that would make a big dent in it. And I think we just still have this culture in physio. I know for sure where dry needling is the current craze. And again, I'm not completely against it. I don't think it's anything new. That's going to be some amazing change in the statistics that continue to trend the way they do but that's just us searching for some sort of security of well i'm gonna latch onto this and clutch it as the because you'll never have a short supply of people that'll get excited over whatever you're confidently peddling as a clinician but if we realize it's probably that confidence in the context versus the specialness of the intervention but that's a whole nother episode i want to respect your time today craig i know you're busy you got a million things going on um i we maybe we have to have an episode episode two down the road and have some further discussions on some things um but for those of you, folks who are interested in kind of learning a little bit more about you and your your teachings and your practice where can they find you um people can contact me on social media at craig liebenson c-r-a-i-g-l-i-e-b-e-n-s-o-n so they can dm me uh, Twitter or Instagram, uh, they can go to first principles of movement, the website, and there's a lot of, uh, uh, free content there. Uh, we did a high value webinar series on, um, uh, telehealth and really the Batman versus Alfred approach where I brought in guests like Lorimer, uh, Matt Lowe and other people, Peter Stilwell dropped in. We had an amazing, amazing group of people. So everybody was a very captive audience and a hostage, and we have almost 30 hours of content that's free uh, that they can get access to through, through the website. So um, I'm out there. <laughs> yeah, we'll link, we'll link all of uh, Craig's contact information, his website and all that stuff is something you should all check out. I think Craig's doing some Thank great you. stuff, and we, we're greatly appreciative of all the things you're doing, and uh, keep it up, Craig. Thank you, Mark. It's been a, it's been a privilege. Thanks for tossing me a vine absolutely happily do it and we'll do it again sometime for, for those of you who are listening we'd love to have you uh, subscribe to whatever you're listening on whether it be a podcast or on youtube um, and if you can spread this episode to maybe somebody else who's in the front lines of the clinic struggling burning out and all these things and see that there's maybe a silver lining in the in an alternative way of getting about it we'd greatly appreciate that but we'll leave it at that this week we'll talk to you all next week 
This has been another episode of the Modern Pain Podcast with Dr. Mark Karchula. Join us next time as we continue our journey to help change the story around pain. For more information on the show, visit modernpaincare.com. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. Please consult a licensed professional for your specific medical needs. Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast.